You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Of course, I'm Michelle Camayo. I'm the compliance leader here at Bolton. I work with employers on a daily basis, having these practical discussions. I'm not giving legal advice, um, but we're talking about how employers can stay in compliance. And there are so many emerging ordinances and laws and regulations. So please be diligent about your updates. So what you hear today could change. Uh, we would not be surprised if some of it did. The goal really is to help employers address or solve compliance concerns and issues. So that's why we're here. That's why Ask Michelle was created, to answer those questions that are, you know, most meaningful to you as the listener. So I really would love to hear your question. And we are in this new half-hour format especially in fourth quarter. I'm sure most of you are going through open enrollment or gearing up for open enrollment. So we'll start out with some updates and then I'll answer your questions. And do not forget that throughout the month, you can submit your questions in advance to askmichelle at boltonco.com. And if you have to drop off the call early or you wanna go back and revisit another uh, episode or a past episode, you can find that on Apple Podcasts. It's Camayo's Compliance Talk. All right, so we're starting off with compliance chatter, which is really what I've been hearing employers talk about and ask about and what's new in the past month. So we're still working with health cost transparency efforts. This is one, when you first heard me talk about it, I think it was last year I started talking about this more and more, that I get really excited about it and really passionate about it because I think transparency is going to drive better prices. That's my take on it. I think it's going to be a while, but that's where I see it going. And the efforts that are happening, there are a lot of them happening at different times of the year starting in 2021. Now, we have a specific upcoming deadline for what is called the Section 204 RSDC reporting, prescription drug cost reporting is another way to say that. For fully insured medical plans, so if you're on the line and you have a fully insured medical plan, so you can consider yourself fortunate because your carrier is going to submit all the files that are necessary the carrier might need some information from you in order to submit the files, but the carrier is going to take care of all of it. But if you're a self-insured medical plan sponsor on the line and you work with a TPA and you work with a PBM, it won't be as easy. There will be action that will need to be taken. You cannot avoid that. And in some cases, you have to coordinate yourself between your TPA and your PBM. So make sure that your broker is involved in this, that you're staying in front of it. The deadline's 12-27, so at the end of December. Uh, that's just a reminder for the self-insured medical plan sponsors on the line. I'm sure everyone saw that the California Supplemental Paid Sick Leave, SPSL, has been extended to the end of the year. It's not a new bucket of leave. Not a new bucket of leave. 
but the opportunity for an employee who still has a bucket of leave under STSL to use it has been extended. So that's really the key piece here. That's been extended. Also, the extension came with a new bill that established a relief grant program for small businesses, including nonprofits. If you're a nonprofit, if you're a small business, including nonprofits, and you did pay out an SPSL in the calendar year 2022, you could uh, apply for some of that grant money. The, the state will ask for proof of payroll records um, with regards to the money that you paid out under SPSL for calendar year 22. Um, but, you know, that really grant program is um, or should be up and running soon if it's not already. It was built into the law, so the money will be there. Oh, in California's new pay transparency law, my gosh, um, this has gotten a lot of attention. And I have, I have a poll here that I would love if you could take for me. I want to get an understanding of, you know, where you are, uh, if you feel like you have a, a, the right amount of education around it, and if, maybe you're not concerned about it at all. So I'm going to launch this poll, and if you could submit your answers, I will share the aggregate results. I'll give you all a minute to do that. Now, doing this, of course, because it's really nice to be able to know what other employers are doing, right? You know, you don't want to be alone. You don't want to uh, make decisions inside of a vacuum or, or feel like you're alone. So it's, it's nice to know what my audience is, is thinking. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks for you, everyone voting. If you haven't, go ahead and submit your last minute vote. Vote. Looks like everyone, mostly everyone. Okay. So here's how it's breaking down. So the question was, are you mostly comfortable with the new pay transparency law? You know, meaning, do you know what it is? Do you know what you have to do? Not that you've done it, but that do you, do you know what it is? We are at about still 45% yes mostly comfortable, and 55% no. And the reason I ask this is because I do have um, a compensation expert, a very well-known, very reputable expert who is willing to speak to my audience members about this, and, and I hold a special episode. So more to come on that. So thank you for that. Got another question for you, because you all have been so good about this. My next question uh, is, you know, last one, is what is your biggest concern regarding the new pay transparency law for those that have you know, skimmed over it and have had some education on what they need to do by the end of January? And I'm really curious, you know, what your biggest concern is. The more I know about your specific concerns, the more we can help tailor our special episode on the new pay transparency laws. So your feedback is valuable here. And I'll give you a minute to fill that out. And while some of you are finishing up both voting, I will tell you that I have heard from a few employers and you know, reading Fisher Phillips article, and one of the things Fisher Phillips suggested was, well, you know, employers should undergo a pay equity audit in the in this current environment and with the new trans new pay transparency law. And I thought, well, that's not going to be for every employer. It's not going to do a pay equity audit, but something to think about for sure. 
Okay. All right. So I'm a little surprised by these. I'll share the results with you. So what's the biggest concern regarding the new pay transparency laws? Um, the biggest one at 39% of the voters impact of transparency for job postings um, on the current participants. And then um, the next one is figuring out the appropriate pay scales to use. And, and this one is, that one was a conversation I had with an employer where we were talking like, well, you, you can just pay, you know, a pay scale. It could be broad. But then we brought up other repercussions of using a very broad pay scale. So I started to realize this is not going to be as easy as just checking the box on compliance. And then the runner up, not far behind, is fixing pay equity issues before January 1. Because once you start posting those pay scales, then I would anticipate employees are going to be very curious to go in and look because they know it's going to be there. Um, and they're going to look and see, and, you know, if you have an employee who's not within that range, that pay scale range that you listed, but they work in that same position, that is, that's definitely going to cause some fallout. All right. Well, I hope that was helpful. Thank you. So more to come on the new pay transparency law. It is brand new. So, you know, not all the answers are going to be ready available. Not all the data and guidance is going to be there that we want. And I will be uh, sending out an invite for a special edition of Camayo's Compliance Talk, where we will have a compensation expert who will walk us through the new pay transparency law and give us more details and uh, action items on that. And that will be coming in the next couple of weeks. So we'll move on to the ACA family glitch is fixed. Did you all see this headline? We sent out a compliance alert, and if you subscribe to the Bolton blog, you would have gotten that blog right to your mailbox, your email box, that is. So the family glitch is fixed, and this is fantastic because it, when the ACA rules were written and the subsidies and the exchange became a thing in 2014, employers and employees quickly, quickly realized, wait a minute, this isn't right because my family members can't qualify for a subsidy on the individual exchange if I myself have access to employee-only coverage that's affordable through my employer. And that's not right because what, in many instances, employers don't contribute to dependent contributions, so for the family contribution. So even though my coverage for me as the employee is affordable, in quotations, my family coverage may not be, and the subsidies, the way the sub, that one could qualify for the subsidies did not take into account that I might have to pay thousands of dollars each month um, for my family coverage. And that has now been fixed, effective January 1, 2023. So that means that more family members will qualify for exchange subsidies. And here in California, our exchange is state-run. It's called Covered California. So when I say exchange, I am speaking about Covered California. There's also a federal exchange, and then some states have their own branded exchange as well, but they're all uh, considered individual exchanges. And so if you have employees and the cost to cover their family members on your plan is not affordable, 
It's more than 9.12% of their household income in 2023. Their family members could qualify for a subsidy if the family members enroll in coverage on the exchange. This does not affect you as the employer. It changes nothing for you. Your the pay or play penalties are still the same. Your ACA reporting codes are still the same. And the uh, affordability that you set for employee-only coverage remains the same. No changes there. It's just that more family members are now going to qualify for the subsidy. And I'm sure most of you know that quali qualifying for subsidies is based on the number of your household members and the amount of your household income. So as the employer, if you try to guess whether or not your employees are going to be uh, happy to hear that their family members could be eligible for a subsidy or you wanna know if the family members will qualify, you can't know that without knowing the individual's household size and their household income. And that's, that's gonna be tough because you won't, you won't be able to provide much data around this to your employees because you won't have all the data necessary for them to know if their family members will qualify. All right. The next thing I'm hearing a lot about is the feds renewing the public health emergency set to expire in January. So they just renewed it October 15th. And every time they renew it, it's uh, renewed for 90 days. So they have to renew every 90 days. They have to go back and renew it. A lot of people are anticipating that the, the government will not renew the public health emer emergency that will expire in mid-January. And once the public health emergency ends, then that has ramifications across our group benefit plans and across Medicaid and Medi-Cal. And I'm really grateful to one of uh, my colleagues really started to dig into this, and so I dug deeper as well. And some of us may not even know that Medi-Cal and Medicaid did not issue renewals during COVID due to uh, flexibility and the rules, some COVID rules that didn't necessarily come across our desk. Uh, so that means there was no redetermination. So if an employee had access to affordable employer-sponsored coverage, because there were no redeterminations then they uh, stayed on that Medi-Cal coverage, even though maybe they should have been enrolled in your plan or should have been disqualified from Medi-Cal. So that might expire in January as well, which means over the course of the next 14 months after the end of the public health emergency, you may see um, more of your Medi-Cal participants you know, becoming eligible for your group health plan. But that won't happen all at once. It will be a gradual change as the Medi-Cal re redeterminations won't be happening all at once. They'll do it month by month. The 2023 FSA limits were announced. So those of you all who were worried that you wouldn't know the limits by the time your benefit brochures were put together or open enrollment PowerPoints were made, um, the IRS has released it and it's weeks earlier than last year. So um, that's awesome. That's great that they did that. Another interesting piece that does not directly affect you as the employer, but is great for individual consumers, is that over-the-county, over-the-counter hearing aids are now available. If you didn't see my blog post, I, uh, I really like this topic. I really like what's happened 
due to the Biden executive order. I think it's a really great thing. So if you wanted to read through that blog, it's interesting to know that you're that anybody can purchase over-the-counter hearing aids. It is designed only for those with mild to moderate hearing loss, but this is a huge thing because you couldn't purchase a hearing aid um, before without going through an audiologist or um, a hearing specialist. And it's just unbelievable what rules were in place that are now not there and are out of the way so that regular people uh, with mild to moderate hearing loss can purchase hearing aids over the counter. And lastly, the IRS issued a warning yesterday around employee retention credit schemes. Apparently, vendors, uh, companies are going around to employers that might not even qualify for the ERC and asking for money up front to apply for these ERCs when technically the ERCs are not available to said employer. ERCs have to have, uh, to apply for an, an employee retention credit, you have to have been financially impacted. So either you've had to have a shutdown during 2020 or 2021, or you have to be able to show a significant decline in gross receipts for 2020 or 2021. And you cannot have claimed uh, PPP money uh, loan forgiveness. So those are the employers that are eligible to claim the employee retention credit. And we've been hearing more and more that vendors are going around um, offering these to apply for these credits for companies that don't qualify. So it can get very confusing. So we don't want you to pay any money unless you're certain that you would qualify for this ERC. I have a question about the new ACA family glitch being fixed. Oh, yes, I saw, okay, you're, thank you for this. I saw a memo, the question is, I saw a memo regarding being able to change rules, allowing mid-year changes to plans who are not on calendar year plans. Can I speak to that? Yes. And do we need to update our, our SPD? Uh, okay, great. Thank you for, for saying that. I'm going to point that out. So let's go back to the ACA family glitch. If you have a non-calendar year plan, you can adopt a new optional qualifying event opportunity that allows family members to jump off the employer plan and onto the exchange during the exchange's open enrollment, which starts November 1. So I'll, I'll kind of repeat that in a different way. If you have a calendar year plan, this optional qualifying event does not apply to you as a calendar year plan. And the reason why it doesn't apply to calendar year plans is because your open enrollment coincides with the exchange's open enrollment each year. So it makes it easy. You don't need to adopt a QE for the employee to drop their family members and have them enroll in the exchange. So the rest is for non-calendar year plans. So if your plan renews any other month but January, you can adopt an amendment to your Section 125 plan that allows for this new qualifying event. So that means that if employees finds that their family members are better served on an exchange plan because of the subsidy, the employee can utilize the new qualifying event to drop their family members from your plan and enroll in the exchange. 
But two things have to happen in order for your plan to utilize this new optional qualifying event. One, you have to be a non-calendar year plan. You have to renew any, on another month other than January. And two, you have to adopt the amendment to your Section 125 and then distribute the amendment notice to your plan participants. So essentially, you adopt the new qualifying event under your Section 125 plan, but then you need to tell participants what you've done so they know that they can go shop during open enrollment for the exchange and they can drop their family members. What they cannot do is drop themselves. So I want to make that uh, point clear. The new optional qualifying event, if you choose to adopt it, does not give the employee an opportunity for them to drop coverage for themselves, only for them to drop coverage for their dependents enrolled in the plan if the dependents are then going to enroll in the exchange. If you're a non-calendar year plan and you want to take advantage and you want your employees to take advantage of a new qualifying event opportunity, contact your broker, let them know you want to make an amendment to your Section 125 plan, and um, they, your broker rep can get the ball rolling for you on that. If you have any more questions, feel free to always email me. Uh, you can email me at askmichelle at boltonco.com, or for our Bolton clients, you, you probably have my email address. All right, someone asked, is there a penalty for the employer under the new ACA family glitch fix? No, no. Uh, from the employer's perspective, nothing has changed as far as payer, for, as far as anything. Uh, really, nothing has changed. The payer play penalties are exactly the same. It, it, this is just a great thing for family members. Regarding the new optional qualifying event opportunity, it is a choice employers don't have to adopt the new qualifying event opportunity. So it's not a mandate. If, if you as the employer make the decision, and if you don't do anything and take no action, then you will not have an event. So if someone were to come to you in November and say, I want to drop my family members and, and because they're going to enroll in the exchange for cheaper coverage, you cannot allow that if you have a non-calendar year plan, unless you have opted into this new qualifying event opportunity. Thanks for your questions. I'm glad, I'm glad you're asking because if you have it, someone else has it, and I want to be very clear about that particular qualifying event opportunity. All right. I have just a little bit of a slide for you. I always want to get you thinking. It's open enrollment time, and for, I would say, 60% of employers renew on January 1, which means open enrollment in November is highly common for most of us. And there was a poll that was taken. I wanted to share some results with you. It was a poll of employers across the nation on their employer medical strategies at the top. And um, the dark green, the bars go in order of years. So dark green bar is 2021. Then it's 2022 in light blue, and then in dark blue, it's 2023. And I wanted to point out the two significant pieces uh, or areas where there was a significant increase, a, where the employer was considering decreasing the member cost share requirements, so decreasing co-pays, which would mean make the plan richer, right? So in 2021, only 9% of employers were considering doing that. But in 2022 and for 2023, 
we had a significant jump. Still fairly low, just about a quarter of them, uh, but a significant jump there. So if you are thinking about making your plan richer by decreasing the member cost share, you're not alone. And the other one I wanted to point out is increasing mental health services. The more I talk to employers and colleagues, the more I realize that, um, you know, the more I see evidence of that we are in a true mental health crisis. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you that, that you're, you're on the forefront of this for the most part. Um, but we're in a mental health crisis as well because providers, in-network providers are few and far between. It is so disheartening to know that as an employee, as a family member, you know, you pay for your insurance coverage, but it, these uh, mental health experts, therapists, and, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, it's hard to find them in-network. And that is not a carrier problem. And I wanted to point that out here as well, is that it, it, I, I don't want you to think it's your specific carrier or your specific network that's the problem. And thinking, oh, if we move carriers or networks, then we'll have better access to therapists, mental health therapists, that is. And that might be true for, you know, you might be able to exchange, a, you know, a couple thousand or more, a couple hundred more across the nation, but... Uh, it is a national problem, and what happens is it's simply supply and demand. And it's the same thing that happens in affluent areas. If you were to live in an affluent area, you will see that providers are not in-network in affluent areas. And the reason is because they know that their patrons will pay out-of-network rates. They know that they will, so they don't have to contract. And providers don't want to contract with insurance companies unless they have to, unless they need the business. That's, that's kind of the, the crux of it all. It's not true for every scenario. I'm just generalizing to bring that into, into uh, perspective, that it's not a carrier problem. It's that so many people need or are seeking or becoming aware of the need to seek mental health treatment. We don't have enough providers and the providers now have the upper hand by being able to be out of network and still make a good living. And so that's what they're doing. And one example I wanted to point out that I, that I am, uh, me personally, I'm just proud of my own company, of course. Um, I work here. I, I love it. But for our company for 2023, we are covering mental health at the in-network rate, regardless of if it's an out-of-network provider. That only works for self-funded plans, of course. That does not work for fully insured plans because you as the employer cannot uh, design your own plan in a fully insured arrangement. So you couldn't go to the carrier and say, I want you to cover mental health providers at out-of-network rates. The carrier in a fully insured arrangement uh, likely would not make those adjustments for just one plan or one employer. But for a self-funded plan, if you're thinking about things that you can do about the provider shortage in the mental health field, one of the things you could do is uh, reimburse mental health providers at the in-network rate, regardless of whether they're in or out of the network. I think that's a, a, a creative way and one of the most helpful ways to get around what's happening with the mental health crisis. I hope you find that helpful or at least something to think about as you're going through your plan changes for the upcoming year.
All right, I had some questions from uh, the audience over the past month. The first one, someone had asked me, what's the requirement to post the labor law posters for remote workers? And um, this, I believe, was coming ahead of a, a minimum wage change. And so the employer was wondering, well, how do I notify remote workers? What am I supposed to do there? Just do they put the labor law poster on an internet? Is that enough? So that really is the question there. What would you do about the labor law posters? How do you get those to remote workers in a compliant manner? And if the employees are in the field or if they're remote, employers should ensure hard copies are provided or made available um, or otherwise distributed, which includes electronic communication. So you could email the labor law poster to your remote employee as long as um, they have a company email and checking their email is a part of their job description or a part of their daily job duties. Most of the vendors who supply these posters have a special format that you can email. So um, you can ask your vendor to send you an electronic copy of the labor law poster and they have them specially formatted just for that for remote employees. The next question was with regards to the new Family Glitch 6. The question was, can an employee drop their dependents so they can enroll in Covered California on January 1, 2023? And we talked about this one, but I'll answer it. They didn't tell me if their plan was calendar year or not. And if they have a calendar year plan, the answer is yes, because you're in open enrollment, so they can um, make those changes during your open enrollment window? So the answer would be yes. If it's a non-calendar year plan, so if you renew on any other date other than January 1, then they can do so if the employer has adopted the uh, optional qualifying event under the Section 125 plan. So you have to adopt that amendment in order for the employee to drop their dependents so they can enroll in Covered California on January 1. So if you have a non-calendar year plan and you're listening on uh, right now, please contact your broker rep and let them know if you have decided to adopt the uh, optional qualifying event. And they will get the ball rolling for you. And then the next step is that you distribute the amendment to your plan participants so they know that this is something they can do and i would say as far as timing just keep in mind that the exchange covered california and any other exchanges their open enrollment starts november 1st so um you know you want to make sure the amendment is adopted so that your employees uh, their family members can enroll during open enrollment which starts November 1, and it ends, for Covered California, it ends in January. The next question, is a promotion considered a qualifying event for the employee to make changes to their benefit elections? So this employer had an employee who was promoted and making more money, and so they wanted to switch from HMO to PPO, and uh, that is not a qualifying event. Unfortunately, I was the bearer of bad news with that one had to tell the employee that no uh, promotion or, uh, you know, a, a change in salary itself is not a qualifying event. The next one, what is life insurance conversion and do employers need to notify plan participants? So if your employer offers group life insurance, they, generally, you know, they 
basic life insurance, and then you might have a supplemental or a voluntary life. For most carriers, that life insurance comes with a nice privilege called the conversion privilege, which means if I terminate from the group life insurance program at my company for a multitude of reasons, I can convert the policy at guarantee issue, and the rates are higher, but I can as the individual convert the policy. The next question is, do employers need to notify plan participants? In almost all instances, the carrier has a contract term that puts the responsibility on you as the employer to distribute the conversion rights notice. The good news is your life insurance carrier likely has a very nice flyer or booklet that, that describes the conversion rights privilege and notifies the participant that you can just hand over to them in the exit packet or you can mail it to their home after their termination. Uh, but carriers do often transfer the uh, responsibility onto the employer to notify plan participants. And the last question we got this past month was about FSA deductions. It's a good question. We have a question on FSA deductions when terminated, when an employee is terminated. When we have an employee terminate, uh, let's say it's early in the month, can we take two deductions owed on the FSA for the month from the last paycheck? The answer is no, you cannot do this. It is against the uh, FSA uniform coverage rules. And those uniform coverage rules require the employer to take um, a uniform deduction from all similarly situated individuals, so really just all employees that are eligible for the FSA, you must take um, uniform deductions. So what that means is you can't double up one paycheck. Even if you know they're terminating, even if they owe money on the FSA, unfortunately the IRS rules are very clear that you cannot double up on, on deductions for the FSA on that last paycheck. Okay, that's it for me. I went over just a little bit. Sorry about that. And don't forget, you can download the slides right now. And as always, a copy of the slides and a recording link will be sent after the, the meeting ends, probably later today or tomorrow morning. Thank you, everyone.